0: Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. You probably have heard that the captive orca known as Lolita, Tokate and Toki, who lived in a small tank for decades at the Miami Sequarium, has died. Just a few months ago, the Sequarium announced plans to release her into an ocean sanctuary following years of criticism from animal rights groups. But as I predicted last year, and as Captain Paul Watson also believed, That was never going to happen. Luke McMillan, head of hunting and captivity from Whale and Dolphin Conservation released the following statement. We're devastated to hear this sad news. Her story of suffering for human entertainment must be a catalyst for change. Whales and dolphins must not be kept in tanks. Her legacy only makes us more determined to ensure that, to stop the captivity in whales and dolphins around the world forever. And of course, we concur. Please listen to my discussion about Tokate, first broadcast in March 2022. Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Lolita is a 56 year old orca at the Miami Aquarium. Lolita has been performing there for 52 years. So, when she was a baby, four years old, she was captured and taken from the Puget Sound, which is a deep inlet of the eastern North Pacific Ocean waters. And you guys probably know this, but in their natural environments, orcas stay with their mothers for life. So she was ripped away from her mother and her family unit, and then transported thousands of miles, and then dumped in a tiny, shallow, barren concrete tank at this marine park, this aquarium. She has been living in this 20-foot deep tank for 52 years. Why? Well, you know why. For the purpose of entertaining us. So people who go to the sea park can have fun watching her perform unnatural tricks she was forced to do for them. And in contrast, in their natural homes, orcas swim up to 140 miles a day And dive thousands of feet below the surface of their native waters. But Lolita has spent over half of a century being held captive and performing in a tank of water. Animal activists have been trying to set Lolita free for years For decades, protesters have complained about the care Lolita has received, and members of the Lumi Nation, the Pacific Northwest Indigenous People, have been lobbying for years to bring Lolita home to a seaside sanctuary near waters where she was captured back in 1970 and where her family still swims today. 1970 is when she was ripped away from her environment and her family. So here's the news. It was reported last week, Lolita will now be retiring. What does that mean, retiring? For now, all it means is that Miami's Aquarium will no longer stage shows using her. And this is under an agreement made with the United States Department of Agriculture. Now, you should know that the Miami Aquarium is now under new management. The new owner is called the Dolphin Company. According to the company's news release, the Dolphin Company operates 27 other parks and habitats in Mexico, Argentina, the Caribbean, Italy, and Florida. According to NPR, MS Leisure, a subsidiary of the Dolphin Company, said as it announced the completion of its aquarium acquisition that Lolita and a companion white-sided dolphin Lee will no longer be exhibited under its new license with the United States Department of Agriculture. So what's going to happen? What's going to happen to Lolita? And how about the other 70 plus marine mammals at the Miami Seaquarium? And how long do we want to continue holding animals in captivity? And why would anyone ever want to patronize these sea parks? It's just so sad. And it's so infuriating what we do to these animals. Attorney Jared Goodman of PETA said, PETA is calling for this to be the first step toward releasing Lolita, and Lee, that's the dolphin sharing the tank with Lolita, to a seaside sanctuary before this long-suffering orca ends up dying in the same cramped tank she's been confined to for over half a century. It's stated in a PETA press release last week, Lolita is reportedly suffering from pneumonia and is in danger of not receiving adequate care. The current attending veterinarian, Shelby Loss, reportedly possessed no orca experience when she was hired in 2019. She left in 2020, but was rehired last year after this aquarium fired its longtime head veterinarian after she expressed concern about the extent of animal suffering at the park. A whistleblower also shared with PETA horrific photographs of a 19-year-old dolphin, Abaco, who drowned after his rostrum became entangled in a net separating two pools. Abaco was one of six animals who died at this aquarium in 2019 and 2020. Three from trauma-related cases, including to the head and neck with hemorrhaging. This press release indicates that, in September, PETA obtained a 17-page federal inspection report revealing many animal welfare violations at this aquarium, including critical issues with the pools and enclosures for the dolphins, the seals, and the killer whale. In addition, the inspection report revealed poor water quality and inadequate shade for the animals. Also, dolphins had been injured and some had died because incompatible animals were often housed together. Lolita displays repetitive and abnormal behavior, which, according to marine mammal experts, indicates severe psychological trauma. This aquarium is under further investigation by the United States Department of Agriculture. And listen to this. Lolita and other animals were fed rotting fish. So their only food source was rancid. Local 10 News reports a former employee. This is good. A former employee of the Miami Aquarium said they are concerned about the killer whale Lolita and predicted she may die in the next six months. The former employee said, she, Lolita, just doesn't look good. She doesn't feel good. So, I mean, if we can get her stable, I think she needs to go sooner than later. So he means now that she's retired, let's get her the hell out of there and to a seaside sanctuary. This former employee also says, it makes me feel disgusted. It makes me feel ashamed to have ever been at Miami's Aquarium. An inside source tells Local 10 News that Aquarium has now placed Lolita on a 24-hour watch. So you guys know now Lolita is in critical condition. So it Is it even possible for Lolita to be safely moved thousands of miles back to her native waters or to a seaside sanctuary when she's so critically ill? The aquarium released a Facebook Live video last week insisting that Lolita is getting better, and I think they're liars. And the former employee disagrees with them that she's getting better. Again, from Local 10 News, the reporter asked the former employee, listen to this, What does that video show you of Toki? That's Lolita. He replies, just her behavior alone is telling us she's not happy. That's not her voice. That's not her vocals. She's swimming. She's sinking a little bit. She's kind of slow. She's not very attentive. That's not her. Something, something's wrong with her. And then the reporter asks, does that alarm you? And the response is 100%. Absolutely. Something's wrong with that animal. A recent USDA inspection report from June revealed that Lolita's long-time attending veterinarian of 23 years was concerned when the newly hired curator made Lolita perform fast swims and big jumps despite her age and a jaw injury, and that her daily intake of food was reduced by 30 pounds a day by the new curator. The reporter said that she and other animals in the park were fed rotting fish for eight days without her longtime vet's approval. The former employee claims that Toki's health has been steadily deteriorating for the past year. Quote, I bet she'll die in the next six months. I don't think she'll make it that much longer. A source told the news that the doctor that is taking care of Lolita now has barely six years of veterinary experience and has never worked with orcas. So the big news here is that Lolita, the 56-year-old orca, is retired. Animal advocates, of course, were hoping or hoped that given the findings in the inspection report from the USDA, the federal government will support her relocation. But I don't know. I think they're just going to wait it out, wait it out until she dies. And even if they approve relocating her, In her critically ill state, would she survive that transport? These injuries, these illnesses, these deaths of marine mammals at sea parks happen all the time. You're not going to hear about it all the time, but I'm telling you, these animals are constantly suffering and frequently dying in the parks. And if taking babies from their families... Is not bad enough, and then transporting them. Have you ever wondered or asked yourself how these marine mammals, orcas, dolphins, get from the oceans into the marine parks? Most people don't want to know the process by which these animals are captured and transported. The group called Last Chance for Animals, I love this organization. Love them. On their website, on their page about marine parks, Injuries that often occur in marine parks include dorsal fin collapse, also known as drooping fin syndrome, due to low water levels, skin peeling off as a result of overchlorinated water, eye irritation caused by chlorine, copper sulfate, and other tank chemicals, stress-related injuries and deaths. Stress-related deaths are common. Some animals even commit suicide by crashing into the side of the tank repeatedly, thereby shattering their skulls. Others are given antidepressants so that the audience will not see their despair. It says here, marine parks are like prisons to marine mammals. They're like prisons. What can you do? What can you do to help? Don't visit marine parks. Don't take your family to marine parks. Don't support this cruelty. It's easy. We'll be right back.
1: For more than 60 years, the International Society for Animal
2: Rights has been consistently fighting the battle against dog and cat overpopulation and advancing animal rights and law. ISAR is committed to saving animals' lives through ISAR's annual Worldwide International Homeless Animals Day. To learn more about ISAR's programs, please visit their website at www.isaronline.org.
0: Welcome back to the show. Once in a while, we hear about the idea of having a pig as a family pet. We even reviewed a book about this, and the pig's adopters were very surprised that their pig, who they named Esther the Wonder Pig, was actually not a miniature pot pig, but quickly grew to be a full-size pig weighing 650 pounds. That, of course, caused many challenges, but Esther's family took them on. One thing led to another, and in very short order, they purchased property and started a farm animal sanctuary called Happily Ever Esther Sanctuary, which is in Ontario, Canada. It's a very nice story, but probably if one wants to rescue a pig, you want to make sure it's a small variety. Now, we all know how intelligent pigs are, but realistically, can a typical family or any family successfully and happily have a pig as a companion animal? To talk about having pigs as pets, I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Evelyn McKay. She is a resident veterinarian in large animal internal medicine at Texas A&M College of Veterinary Medicine and Biomedical Sciences. She recently wrote an article about this very topic. Welcome to the show, Evelyn. Thank you. Evelyn, how common is it for American families to have a pig as a pet?
1: I think it's becoming increasingly common. You know, back when I was a kid, I remember in the 90s, it was a little bit of a fad to have pot-bellied pigs, and I didn't see them for a while. But for uh, the majority of my short veterinary career, I have seen many, many pigs
0: distinguish between miniature or popelli pigs and full-sized pigs who might have been rescued before going to the
1: slaughterhouse. Yeah, so, you know, when people confuse the two, which does happen, especially with, you know, Esther the Wonder Pig is a good example of that. It's usually when they're babies. So most of the pigs look the same when they're babies. They're all born very small, you know, one to two pounds, and they have tiny little toes, tiny little noses, and kind of these floppy little ears. And um, they all look the same when they're little, but as they grow up, we start to see pretty profound differences between the two. And, you know, it's when they're sold when they're little is how, um, you know, people end up with kind of the unintended kind of pig. Right. Um, the traditional pot-bellied pig that um, grows up, what people think of as pet pigs, those are kind of the same as mini pigs. Um, I talked in that article is that there's not really such a thing as a true mini pig. You know, we'd all love to have a pet pig that only weighs 20 pounds and we can carry around in our arms all day. But even the smallest pet pigs are going to be around 60 to 80 pounds, um, and they, you know, they're they're shorter statured, um, they're not as muscled, they're a little bit more fat, and they have kind of a different face conformation and ears and that sort of thing. So they're still big animals like our production breeds that live on farms, but uh, they do look remarkably different.
0: Why would a family want to have a pig as a pet? What are
1: some of the positives? Oh, they're lovely. Um, they're very smart. And I think that in some ways they kind of remind me of dogs. They can be you know, very loyal, loving um, companions, and they can learn tricks. They like Some of them like going on walks. Um, and they also like to veg out and cuddle. Um, they love belly rubs. One of my favorite things to do with pigs um, that I teach my students is kind of a gentle way to restrain pigs for exams is rubbing their belly or forking them. So they, they really like being scratched and kind of itched all over. And if you take like a plastic fork or even a metal fork and just kind of gently touch them on their back and kind of tap them, it's probably similar to how we feel about getting a scalp massage and their little hairs bristle up and they uh, make little cute pig noises and roll over. Um, So they can be very affectionate and fun animals. Um, I think anyone who grew up with pigs would probably say the same. They're very smart and intelligent and inquisitive and, you know, just the same reasons we love dogs and cats. That's right. Evelyn, what are the
0: biggest challenges that a family who adopts a pig could expect?
1: Yeah, I think that um, behavior and training is probably one of the biggest ones, just like any other pet. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they have their own sense of independence and will, and sometimes it doesn't always line up with ours. So convincing a pig to do what we want to do can be a little challenging sometimes, but they're actually pretty neat and meticulous animals that are prefer to be potty trained. Um, Most pigs like to have an area where they're allowed to urinate and defecate. That's not where they relax and um, sleep. So, you know, teaching them those skills, teaching them not to be destructive because they are naturally very curious and sometimes they want to chew on your furniture or, you know, root through blankets, um, which is, you know, issues we encounter with dogs as well. So kind of, you know, training them to be good housemates and roommates and respectful of things around them. They can also be quite protective. And if they feel threatened, or they feel upset like their territory is being encroached on, sometimes they can lash out by, um, you know, vocalizing a lot um, and occasionally biting. So making them feel safe and secure so that they can be, you know, kind of cooperative family members can be a challenge for people who haven't handled pigs before. And probably one of the things that people don't expect is just handling the routine care that comes with pigs. So they often need their feet trimmed regularly, especially if they live inside. They need dental care. You know, routine vaccinations, that kind of thing.
0: Very similar to a dog.
1: Exactly. And I know some very pampered pigs who walk on harnesses. They only go outside, you know, when they use the bathroom and they sleep on the couch or even sleep in the bed sometimes. Um, so they're certainly amenable to that lifestyle. And what do they eat? Um, I usually recommend to my clients that they feed a commercial diet formulated for pigs. So that's going to have a very balanced, you know, mineral and um, vitamin profile. Pigs are a little bit prone to some nutritional diseases, and they're also very prone to obesity. So I really encourage my clients to make sure that they feed an appropriate you know nutrition plans. That means making sure they're getting all their nutrients nutrients without giving them too many calories. So Missouri, Purina, there's a few kind of commercial brands that owners can buy and feed their pigs. So I recommend that as the main bulk of the diet. And if they are going to feed treats, I recommend green leafy vegetables only. So low calorie, fibrous snacks. So lettuce, broccoli, that kind of thing. And like dogs, they have sensitive GI tracts. So we try not to challenge them with anything too greasy or too sugary.
0: Do Families need to be constantly bathing them if they're playing in the mud all day outside and then come into the house. How do you deal with that? <laughs>
1: That's certainly a personal preference thing. Some of the ones that have time outside, they will get muddy. Um, But a lot of the pot-bellied pigs that I've worked with stay relatively clean, even if they are allowed time outside. Um, And some of them do like having baths. Um, They do have sensitive skin, though. um, So I'd recommend, you know, not using any perfumed products on them and not bathing them more than you absolutely have to. Do pigs get along with other pets like dogs, cats, and rabbits? Oh, yes, they certainly can. They often, like I said before, they can be a little bit territorial, so they can often be a more dominant force in the household. Um, they're not usually afraid of sticking up to dogs and that kind of thing. But even so, um, I always you know, tell people to be very careful about having dogs and pigs together, especially if the dog is much larger than the pigs. We do see... Um, dog attacks, unfortunately, in some of our pig patients here where I work. And it's usually because, you know, a pig runs away or gets scared and that kind of provokes the uh, predator instinct in a dog. So they can certainly get along, but, you know, you should make sure that the size difference is not extreme and that the two are introduced in a supervised way and you monitor kind of how their relationship goes. But many live together well.
0: So families can indeed provide a happy and healthy life for rescued pigs, correct?
1: Yeah, I certainly think so. Um, Just like with any other kind of pet, if people have the time and are willing to, um, you know, put the time into researching how to provide them an appropriate and safe environment, I think they can provide lovely homes.
0: So if someone's considering rescuing a pig, how can they learn more?
1: Yeah, that's a good idea. Um, I think contacting a reputable um, humane society or local rescue, they can help you if they have pigs and it's something they take care of and are helpful, um, they can be helpful in that regard. Also talking to your local veterinarian. um, Not all vets are comfortable seeing pigs, but there are a few that are. Um, Always be careful about what you read online. Um, You know, try to read everything with a grain of salt. And I usually recommend kind of going to your veterinarian first with questions about pigs and their care. Thank you, Dr. Evelyn McKay. Thank you. It was great being with you.
0: Today's Animals Today Minute is about the platypus and specifically about two intriguing features of this peculiar creature. The bill of the platypus, described as being smooth to touch, with the feel akin to suede, and is flexible and rubbery, is used to scoop up its meals, such as worms and shrimp, from the muddy floors of streams, ponds, and lakes. As the platypus lacks teeth, gravel is also taken in at the same time, so its grinding plates can pulverize the food into small, digestible bits but the bill may be even more interesting for the specialized sense organ it has. Thousands of microscopic electroreceptors detect moving prey by sensing electrical activity associated with their muscle contractions. The skin of the bill also contains numerous mechanoreceptors called pushrods, which are thought to aid in the animal's ability to detect and judge the direction and distance of moving prey. There's still much to be learned about how these sensors work and interact in concert. Another noteworthy aspect of platypuses are the venomous spurs on the heel of each rear foot in males. They appear to be used to fend off rival males during courtship and mating. So as cute as these creatures are, mind their spurs, because the venom they can inject is nasty. It will cause immediate, extreme, and long-lasting pain, which curiously is impervious to the pain-relieving effects of morphine. Its constituents are still being figured out, but one chemical lowers blood pressure and another looks to be a neurotoxin. Consider yourself warned. And that's your Animals Today Minute for today.
3: Welcome back. In the largest set of prosecutions of its kind in U.S. history, Multiple individuals who were workers at Pennsylvania's Plainville Farms have now pled guilty to animal cruelty charges. The evidence was obtained during undercover operations by PETA. So we are going to explore what transpired here and maybe learn a little bit about undercover operations. So I'm pleased to welcome Dan Payden, who is with PETA, where he is Vice President of Evidence Analysis. Welcome Dan. Thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure. Last year, 2022, we started reading reports about animal cruelty charges against workers at Plainville Farms, a turkey supplier, and then this summer was reporting on the plea deals taken by multiple defendants. Please give listeners an outline of what happened. Sure. So we had an undercover investigator work at Plainville
2: Farms uh, for about six or seven weeks, in july and early august 2021 uh he worked on what's called a turkey catching crew so every night starting around 11 o'clock at night he joined a crew of men they went from farm to farm uh, across at least six different counties in central pennsylvania and their job was to pick up birds who had been raised for slaughter uh and put them onto a truck uh, that was bound for the slaughterhouse And the very first night, from the start, uh, he saw that that process involved gratuitous cruelty, kicking birds, throwing birds, um, striking birds, breaking animals' necks, and so forth. And so he started recording uh, this conduct with uh, covert cameras. And um, after just a few weeks, we went straight to the state police in Pennsylvania, and after about... uh, 10- or 12-month investigation, they filed uh, the charges you referenced, uh, 141
3: total counts of cruelty to animals against
2: 12 different individuals.
3: Okay, so it's mind-blowing. So the footage was turned over pretty early in in the process. It didn't take long to acquire what you thought was evidence. So to your knowledge, what happened then? What was the cause of the month's uh, process?
2: This agency, the state police in Pennsylvania, that they are not known for acting expeditiously. Unfortunately, we have had experiences with them where uh, they have clear evidence of cruelty to animals and it languishes. Um, Part of that, I think, is understaffing. They have entrusted one uh, corporal to essentially act as the liaison for all state troopers across that Commonwealth on cruelty to animals cases. And so I I have no doubt he's busy. Um, Part of the other, I think, challenge in this case was that the company Plainville Farms terminated all 12 of these defendants soon after we released our video. Uh, And I think that the corporal had a bit of a hard time, maybe tracking these men down in order to interview them and, uh, serve them with uh, warrants, charging them with these crimes. But in any case, we we had to apply some pressure. We we called out the state police on multiple occasions. We demonstrated in front of the prosecutor's offices to ask the questions that you asked and that most reasonable people, I think, would ask as to this is overt abuse, right on film. Why isn't something being done? You know more quickly.
3: Yeah. Okay, so, and you said release. So, did you release these videos publicly simultaneously with turning them over to the authorities?
2: We did. Um, And in the past, we've gone to state police with evidence um, in, in an effort to give them a chance to do right by animals involved. We did that, for instance, with a dairy farm in 2019. And unfortunately, we saw that that didn't work to the animals' benefit. Nothing was done for the cattle in that case. And so, here with these birds, particularly given how egregious this abuse was, we felt we needed to both notify state police, also the company and the public all at once, because this was uh, egregious, severe abuse. It was systemic every single night. You know, dozens of birds were being abused in violation of state law. And we had to give those animals every chance we could uh, at at least being treated, you know, with some respect and, and in a lawful manner.
3: Yeah. So I'm wondering if you could describe a little bit about the job that these workers performed and if you can distinguish, I think you're implying this, but is there part of it that is, even though it's crazy to contemplate, is there part of it that's legal and part where they be turned into illegal actions that were not permitted that you captured?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, these animals were being raised for slaughter. Um, they're in football field-long sheds, um, probably 100 feet across. There are thousands of, of turkeys, both hens and toms, in these buildings. Uh, and when they reach a slaughter weight, might be 30 to 40 pounds, depending on the the breed and, and the, the sex, um, these crews go in and uh, push them, herd them essentially, uh, towards one side of the barn. Outside that barn, there's a conveyor belt that leads up to any number of transport trucks that are loaded with coops or cages. And so these crews are expected to drive these animals by kicking them, by scaring them, by terrifying them towards this side, up onto that belt and into those cages. All of that under state law in Pennsylvania and virtually every other uh, state in our union is perfectly legal. Most cruelty statutes have an exemption for what are called standard agricultural practices, and this is a standard agricultural practice. Where it crosses the line in our view, and thankfully in state police's view, uh, is when you start doing this job by kicking these animals, picking them up by the neck or the wing or the legs and tossing them 15 feet trying to break their necks just for fun when there's a stoppage in in work. Uh, And that's what was going on in this case. And and those are the types of acts that were uh, that were charged criminally. And and as you said, are
3: now being pleaded guilty to. Yeah. One more question about the uh, employees. Like, where do they come from and how do these humans find themselves in such a hellish position? Can, Can you state something about that?
2: Yeah, um, you know, these farms in Pennsylvania and and across the U.S. are, whether by design or coincidence, uh, tend to be located in places where there are not a lot of job opportunities. Um, These are low-paying jobs. Um, They attract individuals who may have no inclination towards violence or cruelty uh, whatsoever, but find themselves in a position where this is the the work that they can get a lot of these men were hired through a temporary staffing agency our investigator was hired through a temporary staffing agency and was warned before he even went into his first day uh, that the job was probably going to be a little difficult in terms of witnessing abuse this was a known fact this is how the job was done etc um so it, it, you know and it, Putting myself in in the shoes of these individuals, you know, you're you're, you're sending men in to a, a ammonia ridden shed in the middle of the night and paying them next to nothing and expecting them to move hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of birds themselves in a short order. Uh, most of these animals, because they're grown to grow large breast tissue and and not support a, a skeleton that that can help them move that weight, um, are. Compromised, They're immobile. They're lame. You know, they're slow and they're terrified. And, and so it, it, it's not difficult to to see why the violence that we documented occurs, uh, because guys lose their cool and they take it out on, you know, these these relatively small animals in front of them at their feet. Yeah.
3: The defendants who pled guilty. Can you say? Um... The defendants who pled guilty, can you tell us what they pled to, and uh, maybe also if any of them happened to make any statements in court or elsewhere expressing remorse or contrition?
2: Uh, so, so far, seven of these 12 men have each pleaded guilty to one misdemeanor count of cruelty to animals. Um, they were charged with a mixture of felonies, misdemeanors, and in Pennsylvania, what's called a summary offense, which Amounts to a traffic ticket or a citation, in, in essence. Um, to my knowledge, none have have really expressed remorse or, or, or any uh, regrets for their behavior. Um, they have taken some responsibility. I've seen, you know, two of the men in, in particular uh, in their pretrial hearings and their arraignments did express some some acknowledgement that what they did was their. A responsibility, and that you know that they understood that there are consequences for it. Um, haven't heard anyone try to justify it or excuse it, uh, for that matter, either. Um, it remains to be seen if anyone will actually try to push this to trial. Uh, there are a few men who have criminal records, um, and you know, for them, if they're found guilty, um, they may not get probation. They they may actually have to serve some time behind bars, and. I could see those individuals trying to push it to trial, and and it will be interesting to see if that occurs. Um, you know where they point the finger, and 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 whether they're willing to admit that you know this is not how you handle an animal, even if that animal is you know destined so
3: called for the dinner plate. Yes, that would be interesting if there is a, a testimony, mm-hmm. but we'll see. Okay. Well, let's take a little break there. We're speaking with Dan Payton from PETA. And when we return, we are going to talk a little bit about uh, what happens in the world of undercover videography and obtaining data um, in that fashion. You're listening to Animals Today. We are speaking with Dan Payton from PETA. Dan, uh, let's turn to the undercover man in this case. It was a man, right? Uh, yes. How did he come to be associated with PETA?
2: You know, he's he's a, a good individual. He came from a farming background, in fact, from the Midwest. Um, he uh, grew up eating animals like like so many of us did, um, learned about the plight of animals, decided to become vegetarian and vegan. and. Um, you know, wanted to put himself on the front lines of, of trying to help uh, animals and farmed animals in particular. So uh, applied for a job with us and I was hired as an investigator and this was one of his first assignments. And uh, you know, he, he went and showed up applied for this job was hired and and in a matter of, I think two or three days was witnessing um, arguably, you know, felonious cruelty to animals. Did he have to lie himself
3: into employment? Did he have to deceive anyone?
2: No. He, he did not. And in fact, our, our SOPs bar people from doing that. So our practice is that if you are an investigator of ours, you provide truthful information. You never uh, lie or misrepresent anything. Uh, you fill out your applications with your full legal name, your social security number, uh, a proper job history, etc., Um, but you just happen to admit that you work for PETA. That's Mm -hmm. it. Okay.
3: So can you provide some details about how the footage is obtained? What sort of gear is uh, donned?
2: Yeah, it differs from case to case depending on, um, you know, where the animals are in relation to the investigator's height, you know, and body. Um, You know, they use essentially covert cameras. They're on their body. They uh, in this instance, uh, he was operating two cameras. Um, he had a third one at his at his disposal at all times, and he would use whatever he felt was going to give the best vantage point of what was happening to an animal. Sometimes he was using two cameras at once um, to give himself, uh, you know, a better shot at, at documenting things. And um, and every day, in addition to recording uh, whatever he sees, he's also writing a first person statement. Uh, of those observations um, so that we can submit something to law enforcement in the form of an affidavit um, that they can then take to a magistrate and or district attorney um, and ultimately call upon him as a witness
3: at court. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Dan, does PETA get contacted by the public about animal cruelty cases? How does that go down?
2: Every single day. Uh, we certainly do. Um, we have uh, routine contact with what we call whistleblowers. So uh, by and large, these are individuals who work in various industries that use animals, farms and slaughterhouses are very common. We also hear from people who work in laboratories, the pet trade, um, even the skins industry at times, Um, you know, people who often preface their comments to us with, I don't agree with PETA, however, and then go on to explain that, They've worked in this industry for years. They've worked at this property for years. And, you know, even if they're willing to accept the use of animals for this or that product, they're not willing to accept how things are being done at their place of employment. So they're describing beyond the pale abuse, neglect. Um, Oftentimes, they've made good efforts on on their own part to try to mitigate that harm, you know, speak to supervisors, report these things to owners, uh, but have found that, those complaints fall on deaf ears and things don't improve. And so they lose their patience and they contact us and ask us to, to intervene and we do the best we
3: can. So when Peter receives these reports or complaints, how are they managed? Where do they go internally? If you can discuss that?
2: We have a, a coordinator who handles the, the vast majority of them. Um, and we essentially interview them. You know, we we speak to them at length, we get a sense of of how long they've been there, um, of everything that they've seen of what they've tried to do to, to remedy the issue themselves, if they have video or photographs, which many of them do, uh, if they're willing to share that. Um, we also want to actually, you know, ask them if they're willing to speak to law enforcement or regulatory agency, um, because you know police prosecutors agencies like the usda uh, they can't solve all the problems for animals you know in these industries but their roles are important and uh, we prioritize going to the appropriate agencies with evidence of illegal wrongdoing again not under any expectation that that's going to be sufficient um, but we have to give animals every chance um, to to have a, a slightly less bad life and if the law will make that possible, then then we have to do that. And then, you know, we we try to gauge them and and see, you know, we respect anonymity and and we respect the, the position that these people find themselves in. A lot of them are still employed at the place that they're concerned about and they can't afford to lose their job and they can't afford to have suspicions raised about them. So, we're very, very careful about how we share information and who we share it with because we don't obviously want to compromise the safety or well-being of someone who is trying to do the right thing for animals and, and, and asking us to help them in doing that.
3: Well, it's very interesting that PETA is viewed by so many as the resource to uh, go to, which uh, speaks to the integrity of, of the whole operation. So that's uh, fascinating and something that I'm sure you guys are proud of and, and uh um, I'm wondering if you could share, as we conclude, any thoughts or feelings about what the impact of this, I think, successful investigation and process might be to the animal welfare or rights movement or the whole movement in, in general?
2: Uh, you, you know, I mean, I think it's certainly it's helpful every single Thanksgiving in the U.S. when when people start to think about who they're going to eat. And, you know, we get this footage out in front of them and remind them that you know, this is the reality for turkeys. And Plainville is one of these entities that claims to be humane, uh, that claims to be treating animals with respect and raising them gently and stress-free and so on and so forth. And, you know, we can show that these are just marketing schemes that that don't actually have any benefit for the animals on the ground and, and who are ending up on people's plates. And I think it's it's very important on a, on a poultry industry level, on a corporate level, because it, it shows and it reminds these companies that, you know, they, they may have these massive factory farms, they may operate these massive slaughterhouses, but they're not beyond the reach of the law. Um, they're not beyond the reach of, of good people who care about animals, and they're not beyond the reach of a, a state police trooper showing up with uh, a warrant for someone's arrest. Uh, and I think that has a chilling effect on on abuse, um, not just at Plainville, but on a wider uh, scope. Uh, I think it's also important, legally speaking, that... Um, you know that pennsylvania residents and and americans in general see um you know that that turkeys suffer just the same as dogs and cats and guinea pigs and rabbits you know the animals many americans share their homes with and they are protected from egregious cruelty all the same as domestic animals are um and and that's something that pennsylvania is wise to have legislated and we're grateful that state police and, and district attorneys have um Put some teeth to that law uh, and are, are, you know, uh, conveying that message to uh, those who might otherwise consider harming these animals in, in these settings.
3: Dan Payton, I want to thank you for explaining all this to us and joining us on animals today. It's been a fascinating discussion and also it's been really great to get to know you. It's an honor. Thank you, Peter.
0: And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals.